The basic question that we're trying to answer, at least with the, the beginning of our study, is this. Can God, can you trust God? That's the emphasis of our study this month. And that is the question with which Jerry Bridges starts this book, Trusting God, that we are reading together. And it is a very important question, one that we cannot set aside or ignore. We can't just say, okay, I'm just going to take a leap in the dark and trust in God. That's not Christianity. Uh, that's what, that was a, a notion made famous by a Scandinavian philosopher, Christian philosopher in the 1800s called uh, Soren Kierkegaard, that Christianity was a leap in the dark. That's what faith is, and that's not true. The Christian faith is a reasonable faith. It is a faith that you reason and, 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 and facts and so on to construct a faith. It's a propositional faith. A proposition is a statement, a statement of fact, and Christianity is based on proposition. So we can't ignore this question, can you trust God? Is, is God trustworthy, and can you trust God? And this is especially true in the context of suffering, which is what the whole book is about. It's, it's about trusting God in the context of suffering. And now after the, uh, Jerry Bridges was the author, after relating in the beginning, the story of his mom's death at, at when he was 14, he says the following. He says, That was not the first time adversity had struck in my life, and it was certainly not to be the last. As the scripture says, yet man is born to trouble as surely as sparks fly upward. All of us experience adversity at different times and in varying degrees throughout our lives. He's absolutely right. Interesting that this verse in Job, uh, what I meant when, when I, for years when I read it, I thought meant that when it says a man is born to trouble, means that man is born with inclination to sin. But the more you look at it, that's not what Job is saying in the context, is that the man is, is, is born to adversity. That uh, if you're alive, you're going to face suffering in your life. No, Bridge is absolutely right when he says that. All of us experienced or are experiencing and will experience adversity, which is just another way of saying suffering. Adversity, suffering. All of us have, have experienced, are experienced, and will experience suffering in our lives. And it comes at different levels, right? Think of a, of a, a little kid. Um, uh, let's think of Owen Wood. No, he's three, no, four now. Malachi, he's th- 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 two. He's two. Um, he goes through suffering, and we might say, oh, come on, Malachi, no, buckle up, buttercup, you, you shouldn't be whining about this. But for his two-year-old self, that's a great suffering that he's going through. So we all go through sufferings in our lives. The, que- the question, therefore, that Bridges, in this book, attempts to answer is this, can you trust God in times of suffering? Not just can you trust God in general, but can you trust God in times of suffering? This is really what we're trying to answer throughout our study of the book. And Bridges answers with a resounding yes. And he gives three reasons why you can trust God in times of suffering. He says that God is completely sovereign. God is infinite in wisdom. And God is perfect in love. Now you don't have to read the book. This is it. That's the three sections of... No, you should read the book. He says better than I say here. But this is the three reasons he gives why you can trust God in times of suffering. 
And so the book develops these three attributes of God, his sovereignty, his love, and his wisdom in the context of suffering. And then he says this, he says, God in his love always wills what is best for us. In his wisdom, he always knows what is best. And in his sovereignty, he has the power to bring it about. So, go back to the question, can you trust God in times of suffering? Well, God himself says we can. So if we take him at his word. For example, in Psalm 50, verse 15, this is God speaking to the psalmist. And he says, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. In Lamentation 3, Lamentations 3, 37, 38, it says, Who is he who speaks and it comes to pass when the Lord has not commended it? It is not from the mouth of the Most High that woe and well-being proceed. It is from him that both come. And that's why we can trust in, in him. Now, God doesn't exercise his sovereignty capriciously. Now, we're going to share what the word capriciously means. At, at a whim, like as a spoiled little child that now feels that I'm going to go do this. And, oh, no, I'm going to change my mind. I'm going to do this. That's not how God exercises his sovereignty. But only in such a way as his infinite love deems best for us. That's how he exercises his sovereignty, in such a way that his infinite love and wisdom deems it best for us. In Lamentations 3, 32 and 33 Jeremiah says, though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. What, what, is, what is Jeremiah saying here? He does not afflict willingly. What he's saying here is that God, and again, when we talk about God, human words fail us, right? Because we're limited to creation. But the best way I can explain this is that God would prefer not to bring affliction. He only brings afflictions when it's necessary, when it's good for us. And if you think about it as a parent, unless you're a sicko, you prefer to bless your kids than to discipline them. I hope that's, that's uh, all the parents can say, yes, <laughs> I prefer to bless my kids than to discipline them. And that's... that's part of being created in the image of God, that we, we prefer to bless than to afflict, and that's the character of God himself as well. So we know that, that when we're afflicted, it comes from a, the, the hand of a God that if there was a better way for us, instead of the affliction, he would do that instead, but he knows that that affliction is the best thing that can happen to us at that particular moment. And God's sovereignty is also exercised in infinite wisdom, infinite love, infinite wisdom, far beyond our ability to comprehend. You read, you read Romans 9, you read, read numbers, Romans 10. Sorry, this is my third lesson of the day, um, so I'm running out of steam here. Uh, you read, don't laugh at me, Jerry. <laughs> it gets worse. Yeah, oh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you read Romans 9, you read Romans 10, you read Romans 11. So Paul is working out 
through the idea of the sovereignty of God and how he affects these people over here and those people over there, his brethren according to, according to the flesh, the Jewish nation. And by the time he gets to the end of that, only thing he can say is this, oh, the depths of the riches of both the wisdom and knowledge of God, now how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. He tries to explain God's sovereignty to the best of his ability. He tries to explain how human responsibility works alongside God's sovereignty to the best of his ability. He tries to explain how suffering and God's sovereignty and love and wisdom work to the best of his ability. But at the end, he says, it's still a lot. <laughs> still beyond what we can completely comprehend. He acknowledged what we must acknowledge if we are to trust God. God's plan and His ways of working out His plan are frequently beyond our ability to understand. And that is good. Because if we could figure out God completely, He would be no God. If we could, put, if we could 100% understand who God is, then He would not be God. He would be finite. Because we are finite people. And if we can completely understand something else, that's, that something else must be finite as well. We must learn to trust even when we don't understand. We try our best to understand. It doesn't mean that we just say, oh, I don't care, I'm not going to try, I'm just going to just have faith. That's, no, we try to understand, but we, when we get to the limit of our capability, our, our little processing power gets to the end, we say, oh, how unsearchable are the riches of the wisdom of God. Does that make sense? Any, any questions so far? Any comments on that? Bridges suggests that in order to trust God, we must know Him in an intimate and personal way. So you can't trust a God you don't know personally. You can't trust a God that you don't know intimately. And the Bible says that in Psalm 9, verse 10, it says, And those who know your name will put their trust in you. To know one's name is to know what that person's all about. It's to know what intimately who that person is for you Lord have not forsaken those who seek you so can you trust God that's the question he asked in the very first chapter of the book and the answer is yes as long as you recognize that you are not God and he is that he is beyond you and there will be some questions that will be left unanswered because it's just beyond our ability to comprehend and we spend our whole life Exploring those questions, our whole life exploring the wisdom of God. And at the very end, we still have to say, oh, how unsearchable are the riches of your wisdom. Any questions on that? So that's chapter one. It's a shorter chapter of the two. Chapter two asks, is God in control? I tried to find a picture that so controlled. That person is supposed to be controlling water which is very hard, right? You, you put your water in the, in the tub or in the bucket and try to grab water. It's uh, difficult to control, control that. Um, so, can, is God in control? And in this chapter, Jerry Bridges interacts with a popular book written in the 70s by a, by a man known as Rabbi Kushner. Uh, and the, the title of the book is When Bad Things Happen to Good People. That's Rabbi Kushner. He's still alive. He's um, is part of, the cons- of conservative Judaism. 
is a rabbi in the Association of Conservative Judaism. Don't let the name fool you. Uh, they're Christian. If, if you're going to find a counterpart group in the Christian world, you'll be, um, I'll throw a title there and then I'll try to explain. They'll be the Barthian New Orthodox uh, uh, people. That is, people that don't believe in the inspiration of the scriptures, people that don't believe in the inerrancy of the scriptures, people that believe that uh, the scriptures evolve. Is whatever it means to you, that's what it means to you. It, it can be completely different to what it means to Heather as what it means to Linda. And only what speaks to Heather is inspired to Heather. Only what speaks to Linda is inspired to Linda and can be different parts of the Bible. That the, the Bible is not the Word of God. It becomes the Word of God as it somehow touches your heart. That's the same idea that this guy would hold on. And he became an expert in, on the problem of, uh, of, the problem of evil and the origin of evil in conservative and religious society. Not just in Jewish society, but even in Christian circles. He's still alive. He's 87. He still serves as the, as the rabbi of, the, of Temple Israel in Natick, Massachusetts. Does this sound someplace you've been to, Betsy? Like Natick. Like N-A-T-I-C-K. Massachusetts. Here... No? Here are some of the things he said. He said, and the thing is, a lot of Christians bought into this, by the way. Okay? He says, forced to choose between a good God who is not totally powerful or a powerful God who is not totally good, choose to believe in God's goodness. What is he doing here? He's saying that you can only have a good God or a powerful God. You cannot have both. What kind of fault fallacy is that? There's a, this is a logical fallacy. It's a false dichotomy. He is presenting a, a separation that doesn't exist. It's a false separation. It's a false split. That's what dichotomy means. Cutting into two there. And he says that this is the decision that Job had to make. He either had to believe in a good God or he had to believe in an all-powerful God. And then he chose to believe in a good God. Which is interesting that one of the greatest uh, statements in the book of Job is, God gives, God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Rabbi Kushner says, God wants the righteous to live peaceful, happy lives. But sometimes even he can't bring that about. It is too difficult even for God to keep cruelty and chaos from claiming their innocent victims. So God just watches helplessly helplessly, all these things going around. He also says, uh, Jerry Bridges quotes him as saying, can you accept the idea that some things happen for no reason, that there is randomness in the universe? And uh, so for Rabbi Kushner, it would be better to believe that a child died of cancer as just a random act of the universe than that God has anything to do with that. Which, in my mind, is way more despairing, like leads to desperation, than knowing that there was some, some purpose in that suffering. Even if you don't know exactly what the purpose is, that there was some purpose. That it was not a vain, random, accidental act of the universe. Now, what do you guys think of these ideas before I continue? Adam. Does it really say that stuff? Yes, that, that, yes. 
uh, and then uh, if you may have heard the name John Gershner, he wrote a book uh, with a similar title, Why Good Things Happen to Bad People, in trying to answer from the scriptures. And then this book is like 200 pages long. Gershner is like 50, 40, so he answers in way shorter pages. Lois. Right. Suffering. Why he saying is that some suffering is random. That there's some suffering that not even God can stop it from happening. But his point is to have God completely removed from, from the context of any bad things that happen to people. Josh, um, just a second. Can you turn down the heat? Nick Anderson, thanks. Go ahead. He does. So one of the things he does, he doesn't. He doesn't regard the scriptures as ultimately authoritative, right? So everything the scriptures say about choice, about morality, about moral choices we make, they, he doesn't compute, right? Right. So I, 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 I'm assuming, though I don't know exactly what he thinks, but that's what you'd lead. You'd be led to, to think there. Now, these ideas seem so absurd to us, at least here. I hope it's, they sound absurd to you sitting here today. Yet some people within Christianity have adopted them as the best explanation for the existence of suffering. Uh, I'll throw some names out there that you not recognize, but you recognize that teaching. Clark Pinnock. James Dunn, and you say, I don't know those names, but you know the book, Wild at Heart. You ever heard that title? It's a, the man's book, right? You go out hunting, kill, kill things, eat meat. That's what you do. Somehow, this will be a Christian man. It's based on this idea that God doesn't know the future. What's in theology called the openness of God, that God somehow chose to give up his knowledge of what's going on so that you and I can just act completely independently and he just reacts to what we do. And that's pretty much what uh, Rabbi Kushner is saying. So Bridges says, the implicit assumption in the minds of many is, if God is both powerful and good, why is there so much suffering, so much pain, so much heartache in the world? God is either good and not all powerful, or He is powerful and not all good. You can't have it both ways. So Jerry Brazier doesn't believe this, but he said that's the, the, the conclusion that a lot in, Christ, in Christianity have arrived. You cannot be all powerful and all good at the same time. Is that possible to be all powerful and all good at the same time? Why? Because the Bible just describes God that way. So the Bible describes God as all good, and the Bible describes God as all powerful, right? So we either take both. Now this is important. You either take both, or you take neither. You can't have one or the other, because if one is false, if what the Bible says about God being all powerful is false, by necessity everything else the Bible says must be false as well. 
Are you following with me? We can't choose what is true and what's not true in the Bible. Either all true or none, not, nothing is true. So you can have a God, if you're going to deny the Bible, you can have a God that's not, all, not good and not powerful. But you can't have one or, or the other. It just doesn't work that way. It's just unreasonable. Katie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, I, and to me, that feels like if those, like you can't say God is sovereign, but then there are things that He just doesn't really care about. Right. But I don't know necessarily how to, like, to combat that. So, if you think about it, I, I, I've never talked to a Christian who would disagree with the statement God is sovereign. Right. Everybody's willing to acknowledge that in the abstract. Is when you now you bring down to life. That's when it starts having the issues, right? Uh, God is sovereign over the cold that your kid had last night and kept you up all night and caused you and your husband then this morning because you're in such a bad mood to have a big fight, you know, and all literal, not all figurative hell broke loose in the house. We're not willing to say, a lot of people are not willing to say that God is sovereign over that. Right, and I think that that's yeah. where I'm like, I right. don't know. Well, the... the yeah. Jesus. Okay, Heather's going to answer it right here. No, I'm, answer it. <laughs> I'm wondering if the definition of sovereignty isn't, you know, isn't the same in everybody's mind. So, like what you're saying about that incident or when people are like, well, he's sovereign, but what does sovereignty actually mean? That he is ordained, he has ordained so in the Bible. all those details mm-hmm. versus he's, hey, these are your parameters mm-hmm. and free roam. I'm not going to ordain you to go to this store or that store. Yeah. So our confession, and that's what our, we as a church believe, doesn't mean that everybody in the church believes about as we as a body believe, is that God has ordained anything that happens. Well, if we drop a pen, it means that God had ordained that in your eternity past. So God ordains everything that happens. That's how... In theology, the, the, the idea of sovereignty is used in, in theology books, right? So the God ordains whatever comes to pass. And, but a lot of people thought, well, but God is concerned about the big picture, not the little picture, and, and so on. Well, but then you read the Bible, and we read, Jesus, we read Jesus saying that God is aware of how many hairs you have in your head. He's aware of... A, the, the cheapest, simplest bird falling, the most common bird falling from a tree and hitting uh, the ground. God, if you look at the details of, the, of Noah's Ark and the details of the tabernacle, God is all about those. He doesn't say, here, I want a boat. Go build me a boat. I'm not, I'm not concerned about the details. Just build me something. It has to fit this many people. He could have done that. But he didn't. He, he gave precise lengths, angles, how the, the gaps are going to be filled. The same with the tabernacle. So God is, is, in charge, is also interested in the, 
detailed because that's what people who love other people do, right? A being who loves other beings is concerned about everything that goes on in their lives. Not just the big picture, but everything that goes on in their lives, right? You don't, when Charlotte was a baby, you didn't say, Charlotte, the milk is in the fridge. I'm just concerned with the ballpark. I'm just concerned that you eat. There's food in the house. No, you micromanaged Charlotte at six months old. Right? And some of us try to micromanage our kids at 20 years old and 21 years old and 25 years old. But that's, that's the idea. If, you're, if you love somebody, you're going to be interested in everything about their life, not just their big picture. Katie, does that make some sense? What you're saying? That God is... We have the, 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 the sparrow passage, the hair passage, the, 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 the instruction that God gives about the details of life, or, uh, how we instruct our kids. And it's super detailed. He's not just concerned about the big picture, but the, the little pixels in the big picture. So he does then specifically have a ordainment for every choice that we make? An ordainment. Yes, he does have an ordainment for every choice. <laughs> so it's not, I, like, there is a, forgive my right or wrong answer, but he would prefer me to homeschool versus send my kids to school. Because he is going to make one of those things happen. So there's two things, yes. Okay. But I only use, we use the word prefer. We only know what was the will of God in, as far as the decreed, what he decreed in hindsight. We can't figure out what God's will, decreed will for tomorrow. What did he ordain for tomorrow? Right? We don't know that in hindsight. And another, so if we're having trouble with the God who's all good and all powerful, because there's tension between that, those two things, there's another, there are two other poles that are even in more tension in our minds. One is the idea that God is absolutely in control of every last single thing and ordained everything from eternity past and that we are responsible for every one of our actions. So those two things are true as well. And we don't have to choose one another. We just, we just push both of them at the same time. Now, uh, uh, you've heard of the name Charles Spurgeon. He was a, a Baptist preacher in London in the 1800s. And he said, he was asked this question, he said, how do you reconcile these two things? And his answer was that uh, friends don't need to be reconciled. But the Bible teaches both. And it's like looking at a straight track. I don't know if mathematics, there's a concept that two parallel lines, where do they meet? Huh? No, they meet in infinity. That's a mathematical concept. And if you are in a flat part where you have a straight track and you look down the tracks, both rails seem to meet in the horizon. Now we get there, oh, they're still far apart. And they're oh, it's all, all the way down there. And you get there. But that's the idea. These, these things meet in heaven in the mind of God. We, we don't have to worry about making them meet here. You're absolutely accountable for the education provide Charlotte. And yet God has ordained everything that you're going to do with Charlotte. And yet we're not robots. It's not like God zaps us, I have to do that. No, it, we do everything out of our own free will. And yet God has also ordained everything that comes 
the best. It's, oh, it's a Wednesday night. It's too much, too big for me. I'm tired. Well, it doesn't matter what time of day it is or what day of the week it is. It is a big concept. Hannah, all the way in the back, speak loud. Um, yeah, he quotes Augustine, if you remember, and in, in, in that quote, Augustine uses that language. I think that is a cop-out. Some people say, oh, God didn't ordain this, God allowed this or permitted this, as if God stepped back and let that happen. And usually that language is used to try to absolve God from, from culpability in whatever is happening, Right? God allowed your son to die. You know, he wasn't like he... But I think I've had this discussion like five times in the last five days for some reason. If, if Kim has a gun, he's going to shoot Jerry over here. And I have the power to stop it. I could stop at her. But I choose, oh, I'm going to step back and allow that to happen. Am I less culpable? If I had to power the power to stop Jerry from getting killed by Kim, and I choose to not do that, does that remove the responsibility from me? No, our legal code, even a penal code, recognizes that, and that's a second. Uh, uh, no, not after the fact. After the fact is when you hide the information. <laughs> uh, you're, you're a sec- accessory to a murder. You, you, are, you can be convicted of murder, too. So... Just using language of allowing or permission, it doesn't do anything besides just make some people feel better about it. God, God doesn't use the, I don't see that language in the Bible. Linda. God doesn't ordain sin. God ordained sin. God ordained whatsoever comes to pass. Does sin come to pass? Yes. And at the same time, he's not guilty of it. Because you and I, as moral agents, are responsible for our own sin. God is the only being that can do that. We can't. But he can ordain sin, always through the medium of somebody else. He doesn't immediately sin. He doesn't directly sin, but he mediates sin through other people. And he's not culpable of it. The people sinning are. That's, so that's, you can ask, well, I'll let you ask whatever question you want. <laughs> but that's going to be the answer to every one of them. <laughs> Amber. Sure. Yeah. Suffering always brings growth. Should bring growth, right? So that's true. But those two things are not 
it's not either what you said or what you know, some other people said. Those two things are together. God still ordains whatever comes to pass. And there's always a purpose. Uh, and at the end, that purpose is always going to be his glory. God is going to come out of evil. Good is going to come out of evil. If not in this life, in the life to come, a good is going to come out of evil. But the people committing the evil, even though that evil is ordained by God, are accountable for their actions. I'm going to go to Jonas, he hasn't said anything yet. Yes? How much time? We still have three pages, by the way, and we have to finish now, <laughs> just letting you know. <laughs> How much time should we give grappling with these ideas? Not that we don't think about them, but I feel like as humans, we can't fully comprehend them to the point where it might almost get frustrating not being able to comprehend Yeah. So I don't know if I can give you... So the question is, in essence, what you're saying, how much should we be consumed with this? And the answer is, don't be consumed with it. Think about it, but don't let it dominate your life. Don't, don't let it paralyze you. Don't find yourself in a downward spiral trying to figure out, you know, to use a question that we know the answer, don't, don't try to figure out who came first, the chicken or the egg. We know the chicken came first, but, you know, proverbially, you know, the way that uh, that's used in society. So don't, don't. Very quick, Josh, very quick. You stay in my house. We can even talk about it later, too, so go ahead. <laughs> Yeah. I didn't read in that that they stood there and didn't do anything and not and thought about well what does God want me to do or what to say they were going and doing mm-hmm. and when they did wrong God said you did wrong yeah like they are responsible for that so so yeah and we have the Bible right so we don't wait for somehow God to zap us we do what the Bible tells us to do and we go and it feels like we're doing but at the end of the day is God ordained, has ordained what we are doing. So that would be a, a stoppage in your progress to, to self-analyze? No, you, you, you do want it to look in your heart always to see you and so on. But you should never say, oh, I did that because God made me do it. Yeah. Uh, you know. Well, I feel like saying I'm going to sin if I sin it's because God ordained it anyway. The Bible doesn't put that. No. God's sovereignty is not an excuse for sin. And when, when um, the, Paul anticipated the argument, says, so shall we then sin that grace may abound? May, not, may never, may not be so, if, we, if Paul says in the beginning of chapter 6 of Romans, if you think that way, you don't understand God or the gospel. And it does the same thing in chapter 9 when people say, oh yeah, I wouldn't do that that way. And Paul says, and who are you, old man, to tell God how he should do things? Katie. They're intertwined. Yes.
So faith take over in the point of we believe everything the Bible says. We don't we don't believe one part more than the other. We believe everything the Bible. No, I'm saying that if, if you're asking if you're asking when does the faith take over is the faith take over in the believing everything the Bible says. So um, somebody complains, but well, I can't help. But the Bible says it right here and says this right here, and the, both the word of God. So I believe in both. And you should too if you say that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. That's. Then you're not going to be able to convince them anyway. So don't worry about talking about predestination. Said, yes, I'm happy to answer all your questions about predestination, but let me talk about but, Jesus first. But, and I think that that's where it's kind of like I feel like I want to be able to interact with them, but I think that that's kind of always the point that I come to. And then there's like a brick wall. Well, do. Try something like this. Okay. Let's just assume that what you're saying is true. Let me step into your, that there is no God or God is not in charge. Let's carry that to the logical conclusion. Okay, now let, let, please step into my worldview. And let's carry my worldview to its logical conclusion, a worldview that, include, that, conclu- that includes a God who revealed himself to the Bible and told us all these things about him. Let's carry that out. And, and you can, maybe you can compare things that way. That's called a presuppositional approach to apologetics, where you say, let me examine your presuppositions about what you believe, and then examine mine, and go from there. All right, quick. Uh, nah, forget it. Um, no. <laughs> I'm reading, last summer, you held up some books called uh, Perceptions, I think is the title. Persuasion. Yeah. She needs that book. Okay. I have like 15,000 copies of it. I have to cover the name of the author before I give it out. <laughs> All right, so, uh, okay, blah, 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 um, that's going to sound really good on the recording. Um, All right, so, conclusion. I feel sorry for the kids' club people, the, the workers, so that's why I'm trying to finish it. Um, this is a conclusion for the night. Our suffering has meaning and purpose in God's eternal plan, and he brings, to come, uh, uh, brings it into our lives only that which is for his glory and our good. And we have to be convinced of that, that whatever suffering we're going through is for his glory and for our good. A little bit of what Amber was bringing up, the suffering gives us the opportunity to grow, to serve, to, to remediate the suffering that's going on around us. So suffering always comes to us for His glory and to our good. All right? We can talk about it when we dismiss and we get our kids and uh, no, unduct tape grace from the chair uh, and so on from the kids, kids group. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that you're good to us. Uh, we thank you for the interest in knowing more about you. We pray that you guide us into truth and help us to hold to everything your word says. We're asking in Jesus' name. Amen.